Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Nothing is Real, a Beatles podcast, is powered by Acast. Welcome to Nothing is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Today is the second part of our discussion about the Beatles song Revolution. And we went down some interesting roads in part one, but we focused in mainly on the, the song that we came to know and love as Revolution One, which was the White Album track. But as we all know, there are other versions of Revolution that we need to talk about uh, today. And so in terms of timeline, you know, when we left things at the end of the last episode, Stephen, we were giving a very detailed discussion about the uh, Irish tourism in the West of Ireland in 1968. Yes. <laughs> yes. When uh, at, the, at the end of June 1968, John took the original mixes of the Revolution 1 album track uh, off to Ireland to be played to people. But we need to maybe go back a little bit because as we said in part one, Revolution 1 and Revolution 9 were born from the same 10-minute recording session, this take 18 of Revolution that originally got put down on May the 30th, 1968. So, there's a decision made at the start of June to split this take 18 into Revolution 1 and Revolution 9. And there's a couple of key dates then for when we we, we try and get what we now know as Revolution 9 uh, off the yeah. ground. Uh, and the start of it is really to do with the sound effects, really. It is. So, so if we go all the way back to June the 6th, uh, this is really where work began, preparing the tapes, loops, sound effects that they were going to use uh, on on um, Revolution 9. This is also the day that they started work on uh, Don't Pass Me By, but that took up took them up until midnight, and then they started building up these um, the, these tape loops and sound effects. Um, Mark Lewis describes these uh, tapes as being some that John had brought uh, himself, some that he had put together at home, the others called from Abbey Road, um, collections. We've already talked about Yoko sort of wandering around with a tape player. Mm. Um, so she's been playing tapes uh, into the mix sort of live as they're recording. Um, and, and John sort of acknowledges this is very much her influence. And he wants, you know, he'd heard her do this. He wanted to do it. You know, he's got to have one of his own. Um and, uh, and yeah, and, and so they're pulling tapes from lots of disparate sources. Yeah. There's the famous Abbey Road tape library, where if you need a tweeting bird yes. or whatever, it's there. Um, and then there's tapes that they are recording themselves and making themselves. And then there's what we might know today as sort of found music, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. or, or even if you're being very... Uh, Ponzi, you know, sampling. sampling. It's a version it's, of it's sampling. A version of, you know, where they're... Yeah, it's a version of sampling. And I suppose to one, in one sense, this is something they've done on Tomorrow Never Knows with, with music and backward loops. It's something they've done on uh, Mr. Kite where they uh, chopped up existing uh, tapes of pipe organs and things and you know, created a collage. But this is this is something different where they're, they're, uh, there's, there's a very uh, disparate source of, of of tapes and they're pulling all of these together and then they're going to weave them into a track and the these aren't a, these yeah. aren't adorning a track these aren't sort of uh, an addition this is the 
fundamental this core is of the track. Yeah. Well, that that that's a that's exactly it. Yeah. Whereas you know, tomorrow never knows. I mean, there are echoes of tomorrow never knows where they're bringing in tape loops and going, "What about this one? What about that one?" But as you say, for those, it's you know, tomorrow never knows is still a song underneath it yeah. all. It's it's this it's one. Dr- the tape loops are the track. Exactly. Exactly. It's music concrete. Now, I don't know if you you know about this, Stephen, but um, Paul has been known to say, and I quote. People tend to credit John with the backwards recordings, the loops and the weird sound effects. But the tape loops were my thing. And it was nice for it to leak into the Beatles stuff as it did. He doesn't like to talk I'd, about I'd it. Never, you know? I'd never heard that before. That's, that's... Yeah, but apparently he was the uh, one who was listening to Stockhausen okay. before anyone else. Okay. And, um, you know, all, all, all of that. He, he, may be, he may be influenced Yoko. Perhaps Yoko heard some of these. It's uh, intriguing. Yoko might have been, uh, you know, uh, heard the Carnival of Light tape and that might have set, set all her of this off. off. Um, <laughs> it is. I mean, I suppose that, you know, I'm not I'm not going to make fun of Paul in the way that you are. It's it's appalling that you should uh, diss Paul in that way. But I'm not dissing Paul. Um, That's terrible. But the, the, I, I suppose the contrast here is Paul is doing these things. He's doing it at home. He's playing it to friends. He's not bringing it in. He's not suggesting uh, that this should be a Beatle track Mm. or that this should feed through. It's back to that idea of uh, Paul as the sort of pop side of things john has been propelled by yoko into this avant-garde you know and suddenly he becomes he becomes the uh the 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 prime the prime mover in that direction and i mean i can understand it must be slightly galling um for paul who who starts off in this direction and starts dabbling in these things but you know he he didn't take it forward no, he didn't really. He's he's no. You're right. He was using it as a. I mean, what's important is that it was it was in his palate, so yeah. to speak, or it was in his experience. And he is, you know, in that kind of sixty five to sixty eight period, he's the man about town, taking it all in, yeah. absolutely. But he's still, you know, his way of outputting it is very very different to 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 John. Yes, and I mean, he can. Paul is using it to decorate songs. Mm. John is, I, I suppose it's indicative of that sort of addictive aspect of John's personality. You know, he never does anything uh, in, in a half measure. So he's completely throws himself into any drug that happens to be set in front of him. He's absolutely buys 100% into the Maharishi. In 1968, it's all about uh, avant-garde music concrete. Uh, you know, he's not going to dabble in this. If he's going to do something, he's going to throw himself into it. That's that's not Paul's nature. Um, and so this June the 6th uh, is, uh, and I, I do love the notion of, you know, that they, they come off the back of recording Don't Pass Me yes, By. And they're yeah. like, and, and now we're going to do <laughs> Revolution yeah. 9 and a 1 and a 2. Um, but this is the night where they pull number 9. Yeah. Number 9. They, it comes out on, on that night. And it's a... Uh, it's a. It's from a Royal Academy of Music tape, and we don't know who that person is. Yes, yes. No one. No one seemed to be able to to identify who that was. You think of think of the royalties. I think it's. I think it's kind of beautiful, mm. isn't it? I think it's. It's. You know, one of the things about you know Revolution Nine, and uh, maybe we can talk about the, the 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 how people felt about it later on. But it really is a very good version of that kind of thing. That music concrete. That that number nine is such a hook it, yes. even in a piece of music concrete it has a hook i think i think that's really uh, the, the fascinating aspect to this this is a composition and mm. uh john is bringing his if you like pop sensibility or that notion of you know a verse a middle eight you've got to have a chorus and then the middle eight then the chorus comes back in and you've got to have a hook um so he's bringing that instinct that commercial mm. instinct to working in this, uh, um, and I, I, Lewis and I think has compared this to Carnival of Light, which is just supposedly chaos. Um, yeah. This is a struct. This has a structure. It has a purpose, and I suppose yes. in that sense, one it betrays its origins as the back end of a, a, a song with a formal structure, but also it. it it gives an insight into the fact that its composer is someone used to working in that three, four minute verse, chorus, middle eight chorus structure. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and there's a, a bunch of sound effects collected that day, not just uh, number nine, which is part of a larger sentence. This is number nine megacycles yeah. is apparently what he said. Yeah. I could I could I could audition for that. Um, there was other sound effects uh, on the day that were varied. And I, I love the names of these sound effects. Uh, Vickers poems. Queen's mess. <laughs> Come dancing combo. Organ last will test. Neville Club. Theatre outing. And uh, applause TV jingle, which is, you know, you can try and guess. You can see can see you where can some see of, where some of those be. might be. It's, it, it's, it, yeah, it's like that Monty Python clip of little old ladies clapping. Uh, you know, on TV. <laughs> uh, and some of these uh, sounds actually end up on uh, something that, that's kind of forgotten about is that uh, John's book in his own right is being put on at the Old Vic Theatre in London. It gets premiered on June the 18th, 1968. Uh, Victor Spinetti has adapted it for the stage. Yes. And part of these sound effects are going into that as well. Yes, John is actually working very closely with, with, with Victor Spinetti around this time in, in putting it together. Uh, it was a short play, one of three um, mm. that, that was put on at, uh, across an evening. And uh, it, it was very well received the other two uh, weren't but john's play was actually quite well received and uh, you know you sort of wonder why that has never been revived in any way but my favorite anecdote is i think i may be blaming the evening standard in the wrong it may be the daily mail um they reported that john turns up for premiere of play with bottoms girl <laughs> so yes, um, Yoko is making her sort of public appearances now with with John, and this is being remarked on. Yes, it's all it's all it's all getting a bit uh, weird and tabloidy because yeah, because yeah. uh, that's what the, what they're up to. Um, so that's uh, the sixth of June, and then the the tenth of June is the next recording session. George and Ringo are not there, and John is doing more kind of sound effects collaging, uh, prepping for, for, for Revolution 9. Yes, and it, it, there does seem to be this overlap between the play and the uh, Revolution 9. You know, that there's just this, mm. this sort of squirreling away uh, in, in, the, in the archives looking for, for tapes. Uh, George and Patty, Ringo and Maureen are flying off to Big Sur in California because George is appearing in a documentary about Ravi Shankar and obviously Maureen there as well. There for the there for the right, uh, and the next day there is a bit more work uh, with uh, John and Yoko putting together more sound effects for uh, Revolution yeah. Nine on June the eleventh. But that day, uh, June the eleventh, a Tuesday, um, is when Paul puts down his first recording for the White Album, which is just him doing Blackbird, which we touched upon in part one as well. Um, and there's a film crew there filming some of these sessions. And, you know, man, I wish they'd filmed the White Album the way they'd filmed Get Back. Yeah. You know, imagine if we had like a two hour documentary of the White Album being recorded. Um, that'd be super. Um, but Paul, I, 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 it is interesting that, you know, Paul's debut for the White Album isn't a big Penny Lane type number. It's a small acoustic ditty that he's recording by himself. And whether that's just expediency because George and Ringo aren't there, yeah. uh, because John is... John isn't just doing Revolution 9 on his own that day. He is involved in the, the recording of Blackbird. Yes, I mean, he seems to be in the control room giving helpful advice uh, as, as yeah. to how this might be uh, uh, arranged. But it's, it, it's, it's the, the, even though the 2018 re-release of the White Album tried to sell us as, oh, we're four lads having a great time again, you're also seeing in these initial weeks of the White Album sessions, they're they're not there, really. No. You know, some of them are missing. George is missing on day one. George and Ringo are missing here. Uh, and the next person to go missing is is Paul. Paul then disappears. Yes. And he goes off to New York and George comes back in. Yeah. Uh, and th this is where we get into, uh, we're kind of a few days down the line here on June the 20th and June the 21st is where we get the real collage or the real putting together of revolution nine happens here we have all these uh sound effects and clips on the day but this is the the, the heavy lifting to make revolution nine what it yes, is yes and this is this is really um john and george uh working together on this with yoko uh jeff emmerich remarks that this is one of the very few recording sessions ever that paul wasn't um uh, uh present for he describes, and again, this is part of my problem with this book. He says it was just John and a rather unenthusiastic 
George Harrison working on the track. But George has said, you know, it was great fun doing it. And it just it seems to me this is another example of Emmerich's slightly snide comments uh, about George and to a lesser extent about uh, Ringo. Um, Richard Lush was the second engineer, and he doesn't he doesn't uh, uh, say that he doesn't record any sort of lack of enthusiasm. Hmm. And it's 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 also uh, you know Lewison says that you know George is enthusiastic that you know yeah. George and John are are doing this together that you know th- it's on June the twentieth where the number nine sample gets laid down into the track itself. Um, you you look at uh, Mark Lewis and Sessions book. You know he's he's saying there's a load of other loops there that there's a a, a brief extract from a day in the life, uh, the orchestral uh, day in the life. There's a backwards mellotron. There's uh, some chopped up symphonic piece, which I think somebody on the internet has put back together and identified. Okay, uh, which is nice. I, I well, the, the, find a link the, to that. He he also says Beethoven's choral fantasy, the streets of Cairo, Schumann's symphonic studies. The final chord of Sibelius's Symphony Number no. Seven. It's good to know that people are out there doing this research for us. Uh, and a tape loop that was used in Tomorrow Never Knows. Mm. And George Martin saying Jeff put the red light on, heavily echoed and played repeatedly. I have to say I can't hear that, but I haven't. I haven't Takes many colors to make a rainbow. I haven't. Too. I haven't uh, gone looking for it, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, the song, the, the the chant. Then there's that American football chant. Hold that line. Block that kick. Which for years, yes. until I actually saw that written down, I had no idea what that what they were actually chanting. Yes. Um, so I think it's 45 different sound sources. Uh, and as we said, you know, this is methodical, intentional. There are happy accidents, yes. no doubt about it. Um, but, the you know, it's it's not thrown together for the sake of being thrown together. No, it's not. It's not just a random uh, collection of science and so uh, dialogue and vocals make there is it is done with purpose as you say there are happy accidents you can hear the tape uh, rewinding at one point um but they're they're actually down on the studio floor reading out those like the what to see the twist uh mm. financial imbalance those words that just so so george and uh, uh, is down on the studio floor with john and yoko and they're reading these out or they're just making them up as they go along I did love that moment when George comes in, El Dorado. El Dorado. <laughs> El Dorado. Uh, some other ones that you can't hear on the tape, John says, personality complex, onion soup, industrial output. Uh, I don't recall hearing those. We, we know where he says, take this brother, may it serve you well. Um, it's, uh, yeah, but they're, they're having a lot of fun with this and they're running it through tape echo and it's, it's, as we said, all appended onto the back end of that uh, original recording from from May the thirtieth. Yeah, and you can hear, you can hear. I think it's on the YouTube uh, mix of Take Twenty. You can hear John at the end saying, "We better listen to it, hadn't we?" You know, we better. <laughs> yeah, they're still enjoying yeah, it. Yeah, there's no um, sense that this is anything other than a fun session. Yeah, and Paul is not there, as we said, and you wonder, is that? Well, as I say, it's a it's a fun it's a fun session. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, I couldn't uh, resist. Uh, listen, the but you do wonder: is that um, a bug or a feature, so to speak? That are they doing this because he's not there, or because he's not there? They're like, well, we can't do anything that needs a bass on it, so you know, we'll just tug away at this. It's, uh, yeah, it's, do you not? Do, it is all happening. Yeah, yeah, do you not think there's an element of you know when the cat's away? It's like you know the headmaster or the teacher is out of the room. So we're just going to, you know, do this that we couldn't do this. I mean, they couldn't have done that if Paul was there, do you think? I don't. Yeah, I think, I mean, Paul knew that this was going on, I assume. Like he must have known, you know, on the Blackbird Day, there was a little bit of Revolution 9 work yeah. going on. And I'm sure Paul didn't know this wasn't happening. But but maybe he wasn't expecting eight plus minutes. No, it, and know? I mean, I, you know, you can't imagine that he thought this was going to end up on yeah. the LP. Uh, you know, as I say, John at this time is working on other things. He's doing experimental films with Yoko. He's working on the in his own right play, which requires loops and soundtracks and, and, and sound effects. So maybe Paul is thinking, uh, well, what's going to happen here is this will be one of John's side projects. You know? Yeah. And this is Thursday, the 20th of June is this big session. It goes on from 7 p.m. in the evening until 3.30 a.m., 
in the morning. Uh, and they're back in the following day, Friday, the 21st of June. And this is the day, this is the date, uh, the recording we talked about in the last episode where they do all the horn overdubs and George does his for Revolution 1. But there's also some mixing done to Revolution 9. It kind of gets its stereo mix where it goes, you know, number nine from side to side, all that kind of final studio mixing bit gets done there really trying to you know we, we we've said that it's a sound collage that has a momentum and a story and he's using the stereo field to actually drive the story stereo really becomes revolution number nine it's not one of those things you have to hear in mono yeah yes yes so i mean lewison describes this 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 mixing session saying John had a marvelous time uh, pushing things across the stereo uh, uh, spectrum. George Martin's there, Jeff Emmerich, Richard Lush is there. And uh, the, the, the second mix is the keeper. So they, yeah. they, they, it's done pretty quickly. Yeah. And there's a bit more work done the following June, uh, the, 25th, the 25th, yeah. the following Tuesday after the weekend. And this is that weekend after they come back from their sojourn to the west of Ireland. So, so they come back and they tinker. We don't really know whether they brought Revolution 9, a, mi- a working mix of Revolution 9 with them, or I think would, it's just Revolution I 9. would love to think they had taken uh, <laughs> and played that uh, for the good folk <laughs> of Mulrani. Yes. Um, Did he say what to see? <laughs> um. <laughs> yes. On the 25th, they actually then uh, shave sort of 45 seconds off the mix from the day before and take it down to 1815. Um, still the longest Beatles track. St- still the longest Beatles track and a tiebreaker question at the Beatle Brain of Ireland, you'll recall. Yes. Very important uh, moment in history. Um, but this leads to what I love, which is at some point, and we're not totally sure of the day, but at some point, all the Beatles are back in Abbey Road and Paul gets played Revolution 9. Yes. Again, that's, and, a, that's another day you would want to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> and um, I, I doubt if he was uh, tapping his fingers along with the beat on the edge of the Studio 2 console. Well, we have, again, uh, an eyewitness uh, report from Jeff Emmerich. And again pinches of salt should be applied but he says that all four Beatles were there uh, John is proudly playing this and he says I'm going to quote I could see from the dark cloud that came over Paul's face that he was totally underwhelmed with Revolution 9 when he first heard it and there was an awkward silence after the track faded out um, Paul's only comment was not bad Ringo and George Harrison had nothing to say about the track at all. They looked distinctly embarrassed, and you could tell that neither one of them wanted to get caught in the middle of this. Hmm. So uh, take that, take that uh, with a pinch of salt. I think you know, not not bad has has echoes of nice motion. Yes, you know, yes, uh, at the anthology project. But you know, uh, yeah, Lennon, according to Jeff Emmerich, you know, not bad. This should be the next single. You don't know what you're talking about. He gets all. Uh, you know, I think it's great. And then Yoko may apparently thinks it's great yeah, as well. This should be our single. I agree, John, which probably, probably yeah. helps move things. Uh... <laughs> yeah, well, there is Richard Lush, the tape operator, also says, um, you know, in, in Lewis and Sessions book, he says, you know, Paul was in America when John did Revolution 9. I can't recall exactly what happened later, but I know it didn't get a fantastic reaction from McCartney when he heard it. That's probably a bit more balanced. Yes. Yes. And still, still as a grain. Of he, was a ba- he was a balanced engineer. Hey, um, great mixes. So yeah, that certainly the nub of truth in this is that Paul wasn't chomping at the bit to big up revolution nine and probably felt it was, you know, guys, we've been doing an album for a month. And, and this is uh, what we've got. Yes, this this can't be the single. Um, um, you you've got to think. You know, if that if Revolution One had been the single and Revolution Nine had been the B side, you know, the slow mm. version. Um, you know, was was but the Beatles never really did a slow single. No, you know, was was was, um, was John really pitching it as a kind of? Well, obviously, a single was always on the cards. Like, what is the next single? Mm. And. Uh, there's no sense with the White Album um, that there was a pressure the way there was with Pepper to say, well, give us a single, hive off a single. And I think they were rummaging around trying to see themselves what would emerge as the next single. And Revolution 1 is the catchiest, most provocative, 
original song that they have sure. so far. They haven't, they're a month into the album and they haven't done much. And, you know, this, as, as we've said, you know, the album sessions began on the 30th of May. It's only on the 3rd of July that Paul brings in a song for all the Beatles to play on and records his first song for the album, which is Obladi Oblada. And you would wonder at that point is, you know, is he saying this is a single? Yeah. You know, this this is this is this is this is one for the mums and dads. This, this is a hit, and it turns it out to a be hit, a hit, yeah. and it, it turns it was a hit for Marmalade, and he still plays it live in gigs now. So, he, and they spend a long time teasing out Obladi Oblada in many different versions yeah. uh, at the start of July, and you wonder if the threat of an Obladi Oblada single is what gives us revolution, i.e., the B-side, B-side hard rock yeah. and rev version of revolution, because. Once they spend about a week and a half sort of trying to figure out what's going on with Obladi Oblada, John decides, actually, I'm going to do Revolution. This is going to be the single. Yeah, and I I, I think he's trying to say that this is, yeah, that in the battle for the single, that's my theory anyway, is that this is why we get this extra version of of Revolution. And because Obladi Oblada gets a remake, Revolution gets a remake. Maybe it's political, maybe it's petty, I, I don't know what it is um and they start this on the 9th of july but these sessions are mainly wiped yeah this seems to be uh, july the 9th seems to have been a rehearsal um Mm. and uh sort of sketching it out in this new uh, uh, arrangement um he's it seems to be from what lewison describes pretty complete in the sense that you know there's vocal tracks there's double tracked a couple of words it's pretty spontaneous um, but yes, then the next day, uh, the 10th, they go in and, uh, er- everything from the day before is, is wiped. Um, the, the one point that we should maybe send people off to look at is that, uh, Pee Wee Creighton song. Oh yes. Uh, Do Unto Others. Do Unto Others. Um, which if you, people haven't heard it, it is identical, uh, opening riff uh to the b-side version uh of revolution and this is a a sort of a blues singer i had never heard of him in any other context than this this song dates from 1954 and you've got to think how did they know this song Um, yeah it sounds the exact same uh this suddenly just popped into someone's head uh on on this particular day this was this is the way to do it i mean they clearly it is it is a direct lift from the song it cannot be coincidental but it's not the sort of song you imagine they were listening to in 1954 Mm. yeah well they would have been quite young at that point so how it came onto their you know their their, their radar i don't know there is on the the white album 2018 box set there is a rehearsal take of revolution Mm. which i think has been found from the 9th of july sessions it's a it's an unnumbered rehearsal uh before we get to the the instrumental backing track but that work is mainly done as you say on july the 10th and that's when you know they 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 record the hard rocking version including the uh the uh the opening scream that uh launches the song happens on the 10th of july as well Uh, and then there's more recording the following day on the 11th of july when paul overdubs his bass and we get uh, a fantastic appearance from uh an acclaimed session nicky hopkins Uh, nicky hopkins yeah tell us about nicky uh nicky hopkins uh as you say uh session man from the 60s uh he's all over the place he he is coincidentally on street fighting man uh at the same time uh, that is a great coincidence that, that he's, he's the, the, he link, the, the linking yeah. part between both of those songs. Um, he recorded with the Kinks uh, between 65 and 67, 68. Uh, on Village Green, he says he did pretty much all the keyboards, maybe 70%, but very annoyed when Ray Davis you know, said it was him. Uh, he played yeah. on every Rolling Stones album between 1967 and 1981, Tattoo You, except for Some Girls. Uh, he was in the Jeff Beck group. He he's literally played on everything. If you listen to the very distinctive piano on Angie, for example, mm. uh, 1973, he's on Living in the Material World. Uh, he's a bit like Billy Preston. He sort of is in between the Stones camp and the Beatles camp. He's appearing on solo albums. George and Ringo appearing in his solo albums. Um, he was never in particularly good health, which is why he never joined the Stones as a touring 
keyboard yeah. player. Um, so they had Ian Stewart hiding behind a curtain yeah. for enough years as well. Um, so, and he died uh, sort of early at the age of 50 in 1994. Um, yeah. The one contribution that I've never heard, he, he recorded some uh, piano for L. Ron Hubbard and his oh. Scientology albums. That's a gap in your L. Ron Hubbard collection. It is. It's a gap in my collection. Don't don't summon the hordes. (laughs) Um. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What? Uh, yeah, he was, a, he was a great session player, uh, a great uh, p- keyboardist, uh, Nicky Hopkins. And he plays that... Uh, fantastic um keyboard solo in revolution yeah. it's, it's an unusual thing for a, a, a beatles record to have a rock and solo like that and it, it almost predates the kind of billy preston yes. vibe that we get six yes. months later this kind of very soulful yet rocking uh you know where you can feel the player coming through the, yeah. the piece itself yeah. and i mean it, it, um, it is very distinctive it's not something i think even paul could have uh could have could have pulled off yeah. Uh, and there's a little bit more tweaking on the 12th of July uh, and the 13th of July, uh, where they're they're working a bit more on this uh, B-side hard rock version of Revolution, which at this point has to be in the contention now for being a single. Yes. It's a really striking, fantastic song. And they finally do a mono mix of it on the 15th of July. It's interesting that it doesn't get a stereo mix at that point. No. It's just this mono mix. And... We might talk for a second because that mono mix is really the best way of hearing the song. I think so. I mean, it's just a great slab of noise. It 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 yeah. it, it is fantastic. And the the stereo mix, which you're probably all familiar with, has a very like it still sounds great, but it really spreads out the instruments left and right, mm-hmm. and takes away a lot of the immediacy. I was very upset that we didn't get a stereo remix of Revolution in the 2018 box set. It needs a, it is one of those songs where the stereo needs to be made mono. But do you not think the mono mix is good enough? You need a, you need a, like a Sergeant Pepper. I need a Sergeant Pepper overhaul. And, uh, you know, I, I know a guy who tried to fix it in garage band to take the mono and the stereo versions and to oh, overlay okay. them and match them up and do his own mix. Uh, but he couldn't get it to work. <laughs> oh, wow. Who has the time yeah. to do something like I that? <laughs> Certainly. I don't know. Certainly not me. Um, um, well, but I know that John in later years gave out about that stereo mix because that was done in at the end of 69 for the Hey Jude yes. and he never really liked no. that stereo mix at he all. He said they turned it into ice cream. Yeah, and he meant that in a bad way because normally ice creams. So, so we have this version of Revolution now in the bag, which is in the running potentially for a single. It's got a nice mono mix, and you know they 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 get recording for the rest of July. But obviously, the song that becomes the single gets uh, its first airing on the twenty ninth of July, which is Hey Jude, and what's to just talk about Hey Jude for 60 seconds um, because this isn't the Hey Jude episode but it is great that John realised straight away that Hey Jude was the single that Hey Jude was the song that Hey Jude was head and shoulders above everything else that they had they had about eight songs in the can at this point that that is the one 
Yes, I mean, he never, you know, he complains about uh, Hello Goodbye, I Am The Walrus. There's no complaint about Hey Jude. I think he realizes, as you say, immediately um, that, that Hey Jude is the superior song and should be the A-side. And uh, did you know, uh, Stephen, when Paul was writing that song, <sighs> shoulders, you know, and, and, and you what? John said that's that's the best line in it. And all you, the rest you, <laughs> I said that. He was going to change it, apparently, but John said he, he was going to change won't, you know. That's the best line in it. Um, Paul has given one big interview this summer to GQ magazine I, at the time of recording. I read that interview today. And it's quite a good it is interview. It's a very good interview. Um, um, but but it's it's labelled as his most in depth yet, and he in it he tells the Hey Jude story of John says that's the best line in yeah. it, you know, and it's okay for him to tell the story. I'm still amazed that there aren't sub editors around the world who just snip it, snip it yeah. out, just go yeah yeah we we know you that know one. if you go to see Paul in concert you want to hear the greatest hits you read the interviews you want to hear the greatest you want to read the greatest hits when he's talking you want him to say the greatest yeah. hits this is this is true uh, stop this and Paul. I'm it's my job. I wouldn't disappoint. But but Hey Jude wins the battle for single and Revolution becomes the B-side. But I think, and we've said this before, that that is the single that should have been a double A-side single yes. without a shadow yes. of a doubt. Yes. And, uh, you know, famously, you know, the Apple store gets closed and uh, Paul writes Hey Jude Revolution on the, the whited out windows of the vacant Apple store, which causes a bit of, of hassle. But right back at the start of part one, we talked about this notion of the voice of a generation. Mm. And so the first version that people get to hear of Revolution is the B-side version. And the B-side version has the lyric, when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? Yeah. Boom. End of. Yeah. Uh, He doesn't say out in. So he records out in first, but of course, the album version of Revolution doesn't come out until the end of November when the White Album comes out yeah. and Revolution 9 comes out and it's the, the 22nd of November when it comes out. So the, when the Hey Jude Revolution single comes out, it is the 30th of August, uh, 1968. And, you know, we should probably talk a little bit about the reception that Revolution gets at this time because we've had all this chaos and upset and upheaval in 1968 we have this concept of there are voices of a generation and john out of all four of them you know they're not waiting to see what paul is saying they're waiting to see what john is going to say maybe yes, more so yes. and uh and so revolution comes out it doesn't really get the radical acceptance no um uh, so we started at the beginning of episode one on uh, talking about what was happening in 1968 and that kind of tumultuous year John is also raising his own personal profile across the year uh, with Yoko in terms of starting to do events. He's planting acorns for peace. He's so so his profile as a spokesman is, is on the rise. Um, but yes, when this comes out, you've really uh, th- there's a lot of focus on the lyrics. Um, so suddenly you have uh, uh, you know. Time magazine are looking at the lyrics. Uh, um, you've got the New Yorker. You've got Grail Marcus. It's not so much about the music. It's all about these lyrics. And John is expected, I suppose, mm. by the new left, particularly in, in, in the UK, to be their spokesman and to be in, in, in sync with what they're uh, uh, doing. But actually, the critical reaction is pretty scathing. Um mm. Uh, you know, saying this is a, the New Left Review called the song a lamentable petty bourgeois cry of fear. Uh, Alan Wilson in The New Yorker said, it reminds me of the man who refuses a panhandler and then can't resist lecturing him on the error of his ways. It takes a lot of chutzpah for a multimillionaire to reassure the rest of us that everything is going to be all right. The changer headline is just an up-to-date version of Let Them Eat Cake. So it's... it's wait, on, wait until that woman hears Imagine No Possessions. I know, I know. She's going to explode. Um, <laughs> so it's, 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 it's really poorly received by the very people that you imagine that John was uh, hoping to, uh, to, to please with this. My gosh. And and uh, are you saying that uh, the, the new left in 1968 cancelled John Lennon? My yes, goodness. Yes, I... if, if that had been a thing. Um, well, they didn't. They, yeah. what, they, what they did was they engaged with him. Yep. So um, 
he suddenly uh, becomes the target of, of, of these sort of groups. And there's a new left magazine at the time called Black Dwarf, um, which apparently, uh, I had to look this up, took its name from a 19th century radical paper of the same name. It was first published in 1817. And Black Dwarf in the 60s asserted its continuity with its predecessor by numbering its first issue, volume 13, <laughs> number one. Uh, but they, they, they published a long article, an open letter, a guy called John Hoyland uh, wrote mm. in, in Black Dwarf. Now, he, uh, on the 50th anniversary of 1968 and the, the sort of May Risings, there was a South Bank program about that. There was uh, uh, the Guardian, naturally, uh, published a piece on the 50th anniversary of the Grosvenor Square March. And Hoyland revisited this sort of experience where he, he says now, you know, very pompously, he wrote saying... Um, uh, in the same issue as featured the handwritten lyrics for Street Fighting Man that Jagger had written for mm. them. He writes saying, um, uh, we're confronted with a repressive, vicious author authoritarian system. Can you see what's wrong with your song revolution? This record is no more revolutionary than Mrs. Dale's Diary, which is a very sort of anodyne uh, Radio <laughs> 4 uh, serial uh, on the BBC. Um, yeah. He said, look at the society we live in and ask yourself why, and then come and join us. And he, he recalls that to his amazement, John writes back yeah. saying, your letter didn't sound patronizing. It was, who do you think you are? Who do you think you know? I know what I'm up against, narrow minds, rich, poor. I don't remember saying that revolution was revolutionary. Um, you're, you're obviously on a destruction kick, and I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. People, do you want to destroy them? So, so suddenly he's engaged in this war of words with the new left, um, and he finds himself at odds. It's interesting, yeah. It's, and, you know, it, it's interesting to read all of this stuff and think about all this stuff, considering what's uh, going on in the world as of late, you know, that... The new left were unhappy, the far left were unhappy with them because they thought it was a betrayal and they thought it didn't go far enough. The far right were suspicious of the Beatles because they thought this sort of what was seen as a moderate cop to revolution was, you know, warning the Maoists not to blow the revolution yeah. by pushing too hard. So they still thought it was a coded message to the, the, the far side of the left. And John is kind of in a damned if you do, damned if you don't. But, you know, if, if we think things like... And I really, really hate terms like cancel culture and political correctness and all the rest. I think they reek of a lack of imagination. But, you know, these things are not new. No, no. Uh, I, and it is this idea. I mean, it's difficult to see or to think who before John Lennon in terms of, you know, singers or popular entertainers is being asked for their political opinions mm. in this way you know you would have had actors and singers before you know making political endorse endorsements you know i support such and such a candidate or so but actually this level of engagement um is 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 something new and what hoyland says at the time uh, when he was writing a few years ago in the guardian about this he said it, there was this tension still between 1967 all you need is love and the rioting on the streets and yeah. um, it, it was a, there were people he recognizes, you know, there were people who had a foot in both camps, but there was that tension. Um, mm. And, and what, what actually happens with Lenin is then that he actually runs towards the new left. So over the next couple of years, he starts to embrace that. And, um, you know, he's marching in the streets. He's coming up with the part of the people uh, single, which actually quotes the lyric from revolution. Yes, um, yes. So he runs towards that, but then by the end of his life, he's kind of shifted, shifted back again. Well, you know, you talk about, you know, who was, who was going to speak or who, who was expected to, to speak. Mm. And I think people were looking at these voices of a generation. And if Dylan had stepped up to be explicit uh, about these things the way Lennon was, people would have listened to him. The point was nobody was saying it. And I think John realized he was pushing an open door, so to speak, that, you know, uh, and the more he could speak about it, the more people would want to to listen to him. And in the aftermath of revolution and, and this kind of interaction that he's having with different political groups, you can see that he's inoculating himself for the bed-ins for peace, for, you know, what he talks about, you know, when, when he sort of evolves into being 
this advertising campaign for peace or this advertising yeah. campaign for advocacy in general. It starts here with this song. Yes. And he, he, he seems to get a taste, um, you know, he, that there's a lot of new that's happening in John's life in 68. And, you know, Yoko is part of that, but also engaging in some of these issues and realizing that people will listen to what he has to say about them. Uh, he, he's, 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 he's willing to chase it and to, and to engage, you know, as you say, he does change his mind one way and the other. And, you know, he's got, uh, you know, to use the, the phrase, he's got s- strong opinions loosely held, yes. you know? Yes, I think this is it. Back to this point where we were saying he has that addictive personality. He's either all in or all out. Mm. Um, so uh, he, he, he does the bed-ins. It is all about peace. He's carrying that forward. And then suddenly he is... Uh, you know, he moves to New York, you've got part of the people, you, 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 you've you got that sort of uh, very strident anti-Nixon thing that he does in the early 70s, the whole of the Sometime in New York City album. But then he's back by 1980. He's saying, you know, don't don't expect me to be on the barricades unless it's with flour. So he's tapping back sort of full circle again into that. But you're right. Uh, he's it, it's it's. Provoking a dialogue is the key, is yeah. the key, and uh, but you can sense the shock it, uh, that that he felt that mm. uh, the, the people that he felt, I suppose, were his audience and his natural uh, um, fan base. Um, uh, you dug up an interesting interview that he gave at the end of '68 with a student, a yeah, this student, is um, called Morris Hindle. Yes, this is this is a really interesting thing. This this guy Morris Hindle, as I understand it, was a student at Keele University. He was working on the paper, and he was. They were all sent away and told, um, you know, think of ideas uh, for an interview. What would be? And he just got in touch with John Lennon. Um, yeah. And this was in December '68, and uh, John invited him down to his home, and he spent six hours uh, mm. doing uh, an interview. And a, a little tiny snippet ended up in the, the student magazine. Uh, there's bits and pieces of it have been published. Um, I think it was a New Statesman. Uh, tantalizingly, Morris Hindle has been saying for about 10 years that, that he's working on a book and even has a title, Singing His Heart and Speaking His Mind, The Song World of John Lennon. Um, mm. That was in uh, 2010, but we're still waiting. But it, it, the bits that I have read are actually very um, revealing. So he, he's talking about, you know, we had to become the mop tops to get where we are, but there's lots of changes. I'm doing the same thing I was doing at school or art school. Um, you've got to don't drop out, stay in and subvert the system from the inside. And that seems to be the message. But I really want to hear this whole interview. I want to see this book. Now, what I would say is there is a podcast on SoundCloud called Morris Hindle Remembers, which is really him talking about the experience and it's it, it's a very interesting uh, listen if if you must listen to if, if you do have to listen to other podcasts uh <laughs> what, I, what i like about that interview is you know he you know john says you know you know i've compromised you know uh you know to stay in and subvert yeah. is, the, is the message and it that feeds back into you know agreeing to get into a suit you yes. know back in the Beatles yes. days it's all the same sort of uh, attitude and i think that's totally understandable that he 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 walked that tightrope of you know what do i do to get attention to get notice and maybe in some other point in time it'll be oh, i'm going to send an acorn to this world leader yeah. you know or late in the 70s oh we're going to take out a full page ad in the papers that you know he's he's there is he's he's very aware that it's not that it, to say he's playing a game makes it sound very cynical but but he's well aware that he has to um you know sweeten the yeah, and it, 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 it is all back to that line. You, you know, you're not going to get anywhere carrying pictures of Chairman Mao. You know, if you if you are yeah. too radical, if you are too outspoken, if you are too, I suppose, pure in your ideology, yes. you're not going to get you're not going to get elected, and then you can't do anything. So then you have to make a compromise to um, to, to to actually get into the system. Welcome to politics today. 
podcast. Welcome to politics today. But it, you know, the the message of compromise uh, uh, versus uh, political purity is is one that uh, rages truer than ever. I'd have to say. Um, th- obviously, though, the the sad point is that well, not the sad point, but this single comes out in the end of August, thirtieth of August is when Haiti Revolution comes out, and it's the end of November when Revolution One comes out. And at that point, even though you can count me out in was recorded first. It seems four months later, it must have seemed to people at the time that, oh, that's a cop now. Yes, he's changed he's his changed, mind. He, he's, that, that, he's gone into room. Yeah, that's absolutely uh, the way it was perceived at the time. And uh, my favorite response, I'll not read out all the lyrics, but people should go and listen to Nina Simone's song. Well, that's the most important response because it's a musical yeah. response from someone who's very politically yeah. astute. And, uh, you know, it's a direct, it, 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 it paraphrases the lyrics of Lennon's song. And it's it's basically saying, you know, it's not as simple as talking jive, the daily struggle just to stay alive, singing about a revolution. Uh, because we're talking about a change, it's more than just evolution. So it, it, it's a very direct musical response. Um, and it's, it's a great, it's a great song. Um. So that's the political response. We might just wrap up our chat about revolution because there's a couple of different versions and mixes and, and things knocking around of the song. And one of the joys of the, the B-side version revolution is that we got the promo film yeah. recording. And that was done on the 4th of September. Uh, and again, there's so little footage of 1968 Beatles. Those promos recorded sensibly for David Frost for... Um, Revolution and Hey Jude, they're great snapshots of how they were at that time. It's hard to believe four months later they look so jaded. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes let it be. Yes. Whereas they still look very vital, and they still have they 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 look the, the four-headed beast. Yeah, about them, they you know? look great, and uh, you, you know they're just uh, the, the fact that they you know George turns out wearing a sweater, Paul's wearing his his uh, kind of lovely velvet jacket. I mean, they, it, it, it's they just they just were the four coolest people on the planet. <laughs> at that particular time, you know? Um, and it's, it's, it's mad to think of, you know, you know, when you see them singing the David Frost theme tune and being introduced by yes. David Frost, it's so jarring to see them as guests on a talk yeah. show at that point. Like that's the only thing they really did yes, at that I, stage post 65 or so. Definitely is, I, I think you, you mentioned back uh, in the 68, uh, early 68 episode, it's, it's the sudden d- disappearance of that four headed, press conference, yeah. the four-headed uh, sort of interview is 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 something to be, you know, uh, regretted. I mean, the, the, uh, and this is a, an interesting little little uh, taste of that. Um, so, yeah, they, they record this film. Uh, they're, they're overdubbing new vocal track onto the studio version, but you can hear Lennon's voice is actually is playing in the background. So there's a slight sort of disconnect there and uh, yeah. Paul does the scream and he he and George bring in the shibby doo wop vocals so yes you hear that it, it's it's arguably it's yet another version it's a kind of hype it is yet another version and again I've heard of a guy who ripped the one plus DVD to get the alternate wow. uh, mixes wow. and versions yeah. of tracks. Yeah. interesting guy some guy um <laughs> uh, so yeah there's a promo film, film version there's this stereo version that we talked about uh uh, earlier on, uh, uh, the stereo mix, which is you know the the ice cream, yes. as you call it, <laughs> um, the mono version of Revolution One. I think is that a fold down that's, of the stereo? That's just they 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 didn't do a separate mix. They just folded down both channels of the stereo mix. Okay, uh, and then it's in the Love album, yeah. uh, and there's the fiftieth anniversary. Then remixes from the twenty eighteen box set. But again, that's just the album version of Revolution One and Revolution Nine. We don't get a. a 2018 remix of revolution unfortunately uh and any other versions that are worth talking about there is the 5.1 mix okay Uh, oh yeah that's that's uh, yeah on the box box set set. um i don't know if you ever you know i know a guy that sat in a darkened room listening to uh (laughs) uh that's extremely unsettling but it is just it is the way that song is meant to be heard. Um, Giles Martin just really, I, I, I keep saying repeatedly, I'm not a big fan of 5.1 makes it. Um, but this song just takes it to another level. He, they are clearly just having fun spinning the sound around the room. So let me ask you a personal-ish question, which is uh, when you first heard, I want to focus particularly on Revolution 9. Yeah. What was your take on Revolution Nine, or when did you meet the White Album? I, I, 
think I was I'm, I would have been 15 or 16 at school um, because I remember you could you could record the whole of the white album onto a C90 cassette tape if you left Revolution 9 off. Um, <laughs> so and, and that's probably uh, the way I would have been listening to it, having recorded it onto to cassette. I think I can say hand on heart, I have never not played it. I've never skipped it when I was playing the vinyl and I've never skipped yeah. it. You know, even if I'm in the car and I'm listening to the white album and it comes on, I will let it play. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I honestly don't remember being shocked by it. Um, yeah. What about you? I, well, I was a... Um... Callow Youth. The White Album. A Callow Youth. <laughs> I was a Callow Youth. The White Album uh, was uh, something I think I mentioned before. I bought it on CD mm. uh, at the end of 1988 uh, with like a record token or something for a long car journey. And I knew it was the album that had all the yeah. weird, freaky stuff attached to it. And uh, what I kind of re- remembered in retrospect that I think I bought the White Album because I just bought Rattlin' Home from U2 and that had Helter Skelter oh, on it. Okay. The definitive, the definitive version. <laughs> and uh, so I I bought the White Album and I already own Pepper in a compilation and that, but the White Album, I was like, well, there's so many songs here that I really don't mm. know. Like this doesn't have She Loves You, yeah, yeah, yeah on it. What the hell are all these songs? Um, but I knew that Revolution 9 was this kind of fru- you know, fruity thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I was unsettled by it. I didn't like it. And because... Uh, I was a child of the CD. Uh, it did get yeah, skipped. Just... I, 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 like I went through a phase where I just couldn't listen to it. I didn't want to listen to it. It was kind of mm. ugly. Uh, and then about uh, 10 years ago uh, or, or less, I had to drive um, in the middle of the night from Dublin to Kerry, which is, uh, depending on how fast you go, it should be about a three and a half hour drive. And I think I did it in a lesser time than that. Uh, but it was uh, about two in the morning. It was a uh, very, I was driving on my own. It was a very bright night because there was a full moon and a clear sky and Revolution 9 came on the stereo and there was nobody on the road. And that was the best way to ever hear Revolution. <laughs> I thought this is just fantastic. And again, with the uh, with the mixes from the 2018 box, uh, yeah, I don't, you know, I skipped it for years and years and years and I don't skip it now. I think it's fantastic. And I think it's a fantastic version of the thing it's trying to achieve, which is a, a form of music concrete. It is, it is a, a story and it's, it's just part of the Beatles arc. It's, it's just one of the bricks in their wall and it's as important as the rest. Absolutely. And I mean, I absolutely agree with that. And uh, it, it is, you know, arguably the most subversive thing they ever did. Mm. And I, I think it's in David Quantic's book on the White Album, which if people don't have that book, they should buy that book. Um, yeah, it's called Revolution. He book. talks about the fact that this this sort of, you know, a million houses over the world suddenly disappears, is dropped right into the middle, uh, sort of, you know, the middle of, of family life, of middle class, you know, yeah. America, middle class, England. And it's completely subversive and no other group uh could do that and as you say it's an integral part of the album and it's an integral part of of the beatles uh story and again it feeds back into that thing that john was saying that you know you you know there are certain compromises you make in order to deliver Mm. the thing you're trying to deliver so you know they will deliver the other songs in order to to get get you to a point where revolution nine is 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 there um, yeah, it's 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 fantastic. Um, I think what we'll we'll end off on saying though is that if if you are going to listen to the track Revolution, there's one version that stands above all other. There versions. is, and this is something I mentioned to you just before we started recording, um, which was which is the the worst cover <laughs> version ever of Revolution, and uh, completely independently, uh, with no collaboration, we had arrived at the answer, which is. One, two, three, Thompson the Thompson Twins, Twins. at Live Aid. Uh, at, at Live Aid with Madonna. Yeah. It's Jeez. just and, awful. I mean, you, you, I, and I think they changed the lyrics to We All Want to Feed the World okay. and all that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, it sounds like a great idea. You know, they're having a revolutionary concert and, you know, the, the bad boys of uh, tepid mid-80s pop, the Thompson <laughs> Twins, are there to deliver a message. <laughs> And, uh, you know, you think, yeah, revolution, this is, this is a musical revolution. Let's deliver revolution. But it is, 
it's very frustrating and you know uh it's just it's just if anyone out there knows of a worse version please don't get in touch keep it to yourself that's fine but you know the the to to paraphrase uh 2020 bob dylan the beatles contain multitudes multitudes. and even within a single song like revolution it contains multitudes in terms of what it delivers and 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 what it gives i think we've covered an awful lot of those angles i think so i think so um but what do you think everybody um revolution where do you stand? We're always available for a bit of a chat in the usual places. We're on Twitter, at BeatlesPod. Um, Stephen runs the Facebook group, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, so ask to be let in. And wherever you get your podcasts, if you want to leave us a nice review, that's always uh, appreciated. Uh, but for now, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thank you for listening. Nothing Is Real is powered by Acast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST+, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.